0: Welcome back. In this episode, Gary Arbuthnot shares his perspective as a 24-year veteran of the police force in Belfast, Ireland, where he worked for many years with the canine unit searching for missing persons and explosive devices, and connecting with families that had lost loved ones to suicide. He discusses his reaction to being a first responder to the death scene of a known terrorist, and how he eventually retired from his career due to longstanding issues with PTSD, He shares how he went on to become a counselor and advocate for mental health, providing clients with his unique perspective on the matters that contribute to traumatic stress. Special focus in this episode is on the stereotypes and barriers that prevent men from seeking help. There is a content warning as well, as there is discussion of suicide, death, and traumatic incidents in this episode. Please note that the Kelly Mental Health podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for the services of a licensed therapist. If you'd like to speak to someone about counseling for yourself, visit us at KellyMentalhealth.com. Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi, Linda. Thank you.
0: And now, so Gary, you are a practicing therapist working in Belfast, Northern Ireland for the past two years?
1: That's right. Yeah, that's
0: Wonderful. right. And you were just starting to tell me about, you know, the background and how you, how you came to get into this field. And I interrupted mm-hmm. you. And I said, wait, 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 let me record. So, <laughs> so if you want to tell me about yourself for the people that don't know you, that would be appreciated. Yeah,
1: sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, psychotherapy, what I'm doing now has, has been a, a second career for me, really. Um, having worked in the, the police in Northern Ireland for 24 years, Uh, 17 of those years, I specialized in search work. Um, A lot of that was involving missing persons, um, vulnerable people, uh, a lot of people with, you know, very serious mental health um, issues. Many of them were suicidal. Um, Much of that work, unfortunately, you know, was at the extreme end of that, you know, locating people who had Mm and recovery of remains, dealing with families. So, you know, I've got to see really the the very sort of extreme end of where mental health issues can take others um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, could very easily have taken me too because, you know, my career ended somewhat early through being medically retired because of PTSD, as uh, a result of the work that, that I'd done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, having worked in that world, I, I, I have a bit of a perspective on on mental health. And uh, seeing a lot of people, it felt to me like they were dropping through the, the gaps in the system. Um, a lot of people were crying out for help and really weren't getting support. Um, and, you know, I felt that I was having seen what I had seen that I was coming with a certain perspective, but also bringing a lot of my own personal history and my own personal trauma into that work where, um, you know, I wasn't coming from a place of having just uh read something from a book uh, I've experienced trauma in my own life um like many i was I think like many therapists um that idea of the you know the wounded healer um and so yeah I mean that's that's a little bit of my background
0: mm-hmm. I, you're totally right I think a lot of us do get into this field because of our own trauma our own experience because mm. of course then we recognize it right it's it's a little yeah. bit easier to get into
1: absolutely yeah. but
0: 24 years doing yeah. uh, doing that kind of work and then for a lot of people i mean it's that's incredible that you were able to go into the mental health realm rather than sort of running and screaming from the whole field altogether
1: yeah i mean you know whilst there's whilst there's a connection um there's they're still very different mm-hmm. um, you For a lot, a large part of that time, I was a dog handler working within specialist search. Um, So, you know, I I had a well. At one point, I had three working dogs. um, And that was recovery dogs, which are trained to search for human remains, um, and an explosive dog, so searching for bombs. Um, And you know, there was there would have been a very Easy way for this kind of work in the civilian world. Um, afterwards, but because of the nature of how I retired, um, I, I needed to separate. I needed to separate from any connection, really, with the police for my own well-being. Um, you know, there was too much association there for me, um, and so, you know, I had started to to do some courses. Um, actually, while I was still working, purely out of interest, um, and, and really, I suppose to to find out a little bit more about myself, um, you know. So I had started doing some night courses while I was still working, um, and never with never with a plan, never with an intention to become a therapist. Um, I don't really just developed quite organically as a result of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So how how do you find uh, working this uh, working in this kind of field now in comparison to what you used to do?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's very different. It's it's very different to some parts of it, and yet very similar to other parts. Um, You know, was a dog handler in a couple of different disciplines that I worked in. so, one of my dogs, the victim recovery dog, um, that dog was trained to search for drown victims. Um, so, that would involve being on a boat with the dog, um, searching bodies of water. Um, and that was, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty with that type of work. And there's a lot of, because you're looking for something that is in the water, underneath the water, um, using the dog's nose as uh, the indicator and you have to rely then on divers going into the water to, to search what they're being given. So there's a lot of uncertainty in that and in some ways it's a bit like being a therapist where you're sitting in the room sometimes with the client and you don't really know, is this is this right? Is this happening? is you know is the person benefiting from what we're doing there there's a level of uncertainty in all of that i think and um you know actually one of my one of my my tutors uh, as i was training used to say that all the time you know therapy is just two anxious people in a room together <laughs> um <laughs> yeah and uh, so yeah so there's There's some stuff around that that's similar. And then the flip side of that is that my other work with explosive search was very definite. And there were very, very clear boundaries and guidelines around that. Um, And that was a very set thing. And, you know, I kind of reached a level in my career where, you know, I was certain sort of with the victim recovery stuff. I I was taking part in review cases on a UK wide basis, um sort of really as a UK subject matter expert in that. Um, And I kind of gone as far as I could go and was, you know, knew as much as I could know in relation to that field. And then having to start again completely and you know really come into this world as a total beginner. And 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 learn from scratch um, has been really interesting. But like, I love that. You know, I I love I love the idea of you know the beginner's mind of approaching things from that perspective of look, I'm here to learn. You know, this is because you know a a lot of this a lot of this is a bit self indulgent because I'm still learning about myself. you know every day I'm thinking, okay, well what what's gonna come up today? What am I gonna to learn today? And you know, every piece of training that I do, every book that I read, every piece of uh, you know, CPD that I do, I'm thinking, okay, well what am I gonna know about myself out of this? Um so yeah, it's just it's a really interesting
0: kind of place to be. Absolutely. And you know, just just to put this out there, we're always learning it never ends the learning it's, Mm. you know, and then we're constantly kind of adding it into this big pot of things that we know and we can kind of take from them as we need. So, uh, hopefully making us better, more well-adjusted people. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned that you were um, medically retired because of PTSD. Mm. And Mm. can I ask a little bit about what you noticed sort of leading up to
1: that's it, I've, I've got to get out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I was first diagnosed with PTSD in 2001. Um, like, I spent a year doing a very, uh, very, very stressful piece of work uh, with something that was going on in Belfast at that time, um, working under a really intense terrorist threat against police. For really, kind of a twelve or thirteen month period, um, and you know, during that time, we were we were shot at, we were our vehicles were blown up, um, you know, colleagues were shot, colleagues were injured, um, you know, there was a, there was a lot happening at that time. Um, I was person I was drinking very heavily at that time, drinking alcoholically essentially at that time as a means of uh, self-medicating and my life was falling apart really and I went to see um, I went to see a psychiatrist actually um, who had actually who I didn't realize but he had been an ex-police officer himself and I didn't realize that when I went but uh So uh, I spent about six months working with him and um, he he diagnosed me as having PTSD which all made sense given where I had been working. Um, But the interesting thing is you know I was heavily self-medicating through alcohol and yet um, my attitude at that time was you're the expert, if this is a problem you'll find out so I had a, I had a bit of an arrogance about that, and um, and I think I wasn't also ready to to look at that as an issue for myself. Um, so that was kind of that was one of the stepping stones I would say in in a series of stepping stones that that happened. But really, how it displayed itself at that time was through through alcohol and, and through really just. I just wasn't there. When I was at home, I wasn't there. I, I just wasn't present. Um, I was at work all of the time, whether I was at work or not physically.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, like, I couldn't imagine just the, the chronic stress and pressure and hmm. fear that just piles up. And and of course, now we, we've mentioned as well in our, our first conversation that uh, there's a different pressure for men.
1: Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a. There's a. Uh, men have a perception, perhaps, of what what they should be and how they should deal with these things. Um, you know, I, the first one of the first traumatic incidents that I that I dealt with in the police was in 1996, and I was first on the scene at the uh, at the scene of a, a murder, a shooting. Uh, and, and the victim was was a, 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 a terrorist. I, I knew him. He was a terrorist. And this man was responsible for murdering a number of people. And he had been murdered himself. And I was first on the scene. And, you know, after that, I had, you know, nightmares. I had my sleep was very, very disturbed. Um, kind of flashbacks from the scene, but I couldn't balance this up because one side of me, one part of me, thought, Well, this man's a terrorist, he's you know, he's an evil man, The, the world is a better place without him, and I shouldn't be affected by this. I know this man's a murderer, I shouldn't be affected by this. Yet the other side of me, the human part, had seen something, you know really a very unnatural and horrible thing, had seen someone lose their life, had seen someone murdered, and was, at a human level, very impacted by that. And I couldn't, I couldn't balance these two things out. I couldn't understand why I was affected by this, because the kind of, whether it was the man side of me and the perception of that that I had, or as a police officer, or maybe both, um, you know, you know, I should have thought about it as a, well, if you live by the sword, you die by the, by the sword type of attitude. But yet, that's not how my body was reacting to this. My body was saying, this is not right. This is not good. Um, this is traumatic. And so that kind of war with myself, I've come to see, um, you know, is not a healthy place to be. For human beings, um, where we we are in this tension of you know fighting against ourselves in terms of the, the self imposed ideas that we put on ourselves, you shouldn't do or you know you should do or you know you should be able to, and, um, and it just it just creates such pain and turmoil. You know, whenever I, whenever I you know I've recently done some. Training in IFS and internal family systems. Um, and when, you know, talks about the different parts, you know, I mean, it was very clear to me that I had very clear starts in that story. So I mm-hmm.
0: The conflicting parts, it, it's such an interesting. Uh, line Mm. of work when you're able to work therapeutically and addressing, you know, here's this part of you that is insisting on thinking this way, and here's this part in there completely at odds. Uh, Mm. So I've only just started to explore IFS, but um, we have a colleague that is a big fan of it. So really work to be done there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I am also just beginning to to sort of look into it, but it does sit very well for me. Because I I can certainly see how there has been, you know, these these conflicting voices within me for much of my life, really. Um, You know, and I also think that's the case. I see that with clients that I work with as well. Um, I see that certainly with with men and women. It's not unique to men, certainly. Um, But, um, and it's interesting... You know i've watched some of your other interviews with some of your other your other uh folks on here and they've been great um and the idea and you know the impact of social media uh on people and that kind of fear of missing out type thing and you know i've worked with men in their in their mid 40s late 40s here you're looking at facebook who are seeing friends posting on facebook of their their ideal lives and they're saying to me i know this is not real yet i still feel like i'm missing out so they 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 know on a cognitive level they know this is not you know this is not quite the perfect thing that's being presented yes what's interesting It's interesting
0: It really is. Yeah. And, uh, that, that social media portrayal of course is, so we, we just pick and we pick and choose what, not only what we want to post, but what we want to see.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So do you work with a lot of PTSD yourself now in terms of, uh, therapy?
1: Um, you know, it, it not specifically, um, you know, it certainly does, come up for for many people, Um, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, just uh, sort of the area of developmental trauma and complex trauma, um, because the the interesting thing that I've noticed about myself is that, you know, I think my experience of it is, you know, it's reasonably extreme, my experience of, you know, of, of trauma, but I have really come to an understanding that it doesn't have to be that for it to be traumatizing at all. Um, and you know, I, I would be very much um, sort of against that idea. You know, of, uh, you know, I would really like to see the whole um, the idea of you know, what well, PTSD is only something that happened to soldiers or to police officers or firefighters, you know, I think that is really harmful, that idea, uh, and keeps many, many people from really getting effective treatment. Um, And and I mean, I know that that, you know, that is shifting somewhat, um, and I'm really happy to see that. But, um, you know, just the idea that so many of us Uh, have these traumas in our life from childhood not because of the things that happened to us necessarily but because of the things that we didn't get because of the the lack sometimes of you know real nurturing and emotional connection Um, i don't know what it was like for you growing up but certainly for me and 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 that's it certainly i see it with a lot of my clients who are irish you know, um, well, growing up, there was an attitude of, well, you have a roof over your head and there's food in the cupboard and you have clothes on your back. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. Um, you certainly don't need any of this emotional, mushy stuff. That will only make you soft. And, and that is that was very pervasive, certainly here, um, and certainly the attitude that I grew up with so you know, not to criticize you know our parents and criticize people of that generation um but yeah so that comes up a lot that that comes up a lot for for many of the clients that i work with certainly that i see
0: mm-hmm. All right. well you know i wonder sometimes it goes back to uh you know, if we think even a hundred years ago, we had more ritual around these Mm -hmm. things that we go through. And uh, we've lost a lot of that, at least as far as I can see, there was a time period where when someone died in your family, there's a whole ritual, a whole routine, the whole family always, they just knew to do. And now it's different. It's changed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, I think the other thing is about Modern, I'm going back to modern times again, you know, the, the 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 kind of, the damage is done for for children now, of course, going back to social media and technology is that, you know, this idea of, you know, proximally absent parents, you know, where, yeah, they're in the room together, but they're completely disconnected because everyone's sitting on their phone looking at social media or, you know, you see it in restaurants, whatever we used to be in restaurants you know, parents and a couple of kids and everybody's sitting on their phone. Nobody's talking, nobody's interacting with each other. Um, and yeah, you know, and obviously that's, we're starting to see a lot of that stuff. It's,
0: uh, it's interesting times. The world is changing so quickly and um, we're, and, and there's yeah. lots of very strong opinions in each direction on, you know, what's right, what's wrong. Yeah. what uh do you think uh, what do you what do you think are some of the stereotypes that you mentioned that keep men from seeking help
1: uh yeah i mean i think i think there's you know there's a there's just a a pervasive attitude that um only people who are weak go to therapy um you know that certainly still exists which which seems to me now seems incredible, mm-hmm. um, but it's 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 definitely an attitude that is still out there. Um, you know, I, I think financial restraints impact on people coming to therapy as well. Um, it's it's seen as it can be seen very much as a luxury, um, both in emotional terms. Uh, I think as people can see it as indulgent um but also in financial terms and you know and it's one thing that i i I do notice i think more with men that there is a tendency for men to come and have perhaps three or four sessions get a little bit of relief and think okay that's it i'm gone i'm out of here now um where i certainly noticed that my female clients will tend to be more curious um, and, and want to, once they start to see some movement, they're more interested to push on and learn more and and, um, and sort of go into a little bit more depth. And that's a very, I'm making a very general statement there. Um, but it's just something that I have versus, versus female clients. Um, I think, for me, I think many men haven't experienced another man being compassionate towards them. I think that's that's a very unusual thing for many men in our society, and, and you know, and probably many women as well. Um, but certainly, the the a man being compassionate to another man I, I can see the reaction sometimes for for some of those men that it it's a very unusual thing and I've noticed occasionally it can take a bit of time to almost you know get past the you know they just want to chat almost they want to be they're kind of trying to be a bit macho and they're trying to be a bit you know tell macho jokes and this sort of stuff um and i'm just trying to i'm just trying to be compassionate towards them and it takes it, it, it's a really foreign thing it seems like a really foreign idea to them that a man can be compassionate to another man or maybe even a man could be compassionate at all you know um so yeah it's it's very interesting
0: mm-hmm. How would you encourage men to be uh, compassionate or how would you get them to show that compassion to other men? Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, there's a bit of it I think is, I think there's a bit of it is modeling um, for me as a therapist where I just try and really be consistent with that compassion. Um, And I think, you know, with that, that's also not about, shying away from challenge, for instance, whenever challenge is appropriate. But I think that can also be done very compassionately. Um, but I mean, I, I would also speak to some clients specifically about being compassionate to others, about how they can show that to other people as a means of you know, treating others as you would like them to treat you. Uh, you know, because quite often people are bringing that stuff into the room. And they're, well, you know, my, my wife is doing this to me or my partner's doing that to me or she, she keeps saying this or he keeps saying that. I'm simply sometimes turning that around to say, okay, well, how do you speak to them? Um, you know, maybe you could help them to understand how you'd like to be spoken to by you speaking to them in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and you know, that's of course not to say that some relationships are not difficult, and probably that's not avoiding that stuff. Um, but on very simple terms, just uh, offering that idea of being compassionate to see that that opens the door for that to come back again.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, so modeling what you sort of want to see and then you know probably feeling good about your own behavior regardless of how someone acts towards you um oh. but yeah one, one thing actually as you mentioned i was going to ask you um a lot of people that are they're not used to having compassion shown to them they don't know how to take it hmm. And I'm wondering how you address that with, with a yeah. person that you know can't take compliments. They get uncomfortable when someone is being compassionate or validating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a good point, actually. So it is, and, uh, and I think particularly, you know, people who you know have have been traumatized a lot of the time, and particularly you know, traumatized in childhood, perhaps through you know abuse of others, um, were actually you know, compassion could almost be perceived as, uh, you know, grooming because they may have experienced that in the past. And so certainly holding, you know, an awareness of that uh, and an awareness of how that is being perceived is is important. And I, I think it's one of the challenges that I've noticed certainly in moving to working online, uh, where I don't have full access to the client's body, so I'm not able to to track their body movements just as easily Um, in terms of trying to see their reactions to things um, and trying to sort of be connected at that level with them. Um, So I think there is no one size fits all, I think, with all clients. I think I, I try to approach it as on an individual basis and see what feels right in terms of offering that compassion to each client and see how they respond to that. Um, and also, I think, you know, using some psychoeducation around some of that stuff as well for some clients that actually, you know, it's okay to hear that you're a good person. It's okay to think that way. Um, It's okay to actually think that about yourself. It's okay to to acknowledge that what you did, there was a good thing and you did a good thing. Um, You know, that is so foreign, I think, for for many people. That um, Certainly, again, you know, certainly from an Irish perspective, many of us grew up here with the, the kind of... Uh, message that so anything in any way celebratory about an achievement would be seen as a boastful thing and therefore a bad thing. So um, you know any sort of acknowledgement that an achievement, for instance, is is a good thing, has been suppressed. Um, and so you know many people with this idea that actually they can't celebrate hard work. They can't celebrate and acknowledge where they have achieved things. Um, And and simply, you know, I think at times trying to sit with people and actually, you know, help them to understand you worked really hard to achieve this thing. And that was really difficult. And you committed a lot of yourself to them. And you've achieved them. And and that is amazing. Um, For some people, again, seems a bit foreign to be able to allow themselves to feel Mm that
0: it really is i i do notice that Mm. some people will get visibly like you said the body language is such a big giveaway (laughs) they'll get visibly uncomfortable if you say wow you know that what you just went through must have been devastating and they just go "Mm, well i mean you have i've had it worse or you know other people have it worse." yeah
1: yeah, I, yeah. I think one of the things uh, you know, I, I I try to work on, and you know, is is actually sitting. You know, if, if I'm working with someone for a while and they come in to a session and they say, "Oh, I've I had a good week," you know, this happened, and I was able to do you know A, B, and C, and I felt good, and it was a bit tough, but I was able to work through it, and actually. It, it was really good, so actually spent time with that person looking at that and, you know, sort of setting in that experience so that it really kind of enhances how that felt for them to get something to do, for something to go well for them and for them to see that actually, you know, the therapeutic process is working, that more importantly, that the work that they're putting in is working, that actually they're not doomed to live in this place of failure. For instance, that they they believe that they're in, um, and, and so helping them to actually embody that and feel, all oh, right right, okay, so that's what that feels like. That's what it feels okay, and it's okay. It's okay to say that then. I'm allowed to actually say and talk about this. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's 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 such simple stuff, really, mm-hmm. but it seems to mean a lot.
0: It does. It's it's wonderful that you're able to do that with people. Um, I was yeah. just thinking about you know just kind of going back to you know your past career and you know, we do treat veterans in our practice. Uh, We do work with, um, you know, police officers from time to time. And I noticed that I'm not sure if it's just sort of the culture uh, or even just the fact that you are in survival mode for years and years on end. Um, But they have to sort of think about mental health issues in a way that doesn't let them sort of let it in you know like if in your case I'm curious you know here you're working with cadaver dogs you're finding human remains you were seeing the result of suicide and murder Mm. I mean do you think about mental health issues differently now than you did then
1: um I mean the team that I was in there were there were 24 of us in that team that were were very closely involved in in those searches Um, and we were all very aware of the impact of it Um, so um, and that was without conversation I think we just knew uh, so there was a respect around that stuff Um, and maybe perhaps going against a little bit of you know Public perception at times, there wasn't a lot of black humour took place in relation to that. There was a respect about it, um, and the difficulty for what we were doing was that we were interacting with the families as well. So we were quite often interviewing the family of the victim, and then being involved in the search, and then perhaps finding the victim and recovering the person. And then, quite often, perhaps, sort of the family being there as the person's being recovered. And it humanized the whole thing because it.